Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Oral Presentations, episode 48, The War. Marvelous Marvin Hagler versus Thomas the Hitman Hearns. Now it is October. I did say we'd be doing spooky shit all October long, and we still are. October is a long month. It's, I think it's actually not a long, but no, it's 31 days, right? October 31st, Halloween. It's a long month. It's a long month. And we are going to be doing spooky shit, and I was planning on doing one, but somebody left an iTunes review, and they wanted Hagler Hearns, and I was like, I didn't even think of that, and it was a good enough reco that it bumped. I had, I had the first Halloween topic ready, but Hagler Hearns, such a strong reco, it bumped Aleister Crawley to Wednesday, so that's going to be Wednesday. If you don't know who that is, that's just some fucking liar <laughs> from the 1900s, a guy named Aleister Crowley. He, uh... That'll be Wednesday. He was like a spiritual seance man with a triangle on his head saying he could talk to ghosts. <laughs> Just stealing a bunch of people's fucking money in, uh, in like 1908 or something like that. I don't know. That'll, but that'll be Wednesday. Look, we got spooky topics on deck. Okay? But somebody somebody asked for Hagler Hearns, and it's it's one of the greatest boxing fights of all time. Round one is regarded as the best, fight, the best round of boxing maybe to ever take place. Uh, and so I wanted to, I wanted to take a look at it. That was a great reco. And then, uh, I got caught up looking into it and, uh, tried to learn a back handspring, <laughs> which doesn't make sense. My lower abdominal wall is on fire. I gotta tell you, I don't know why. It has nothing to do with boxing. I don't know. I just saw, I saw a jump rope. You know, it's been a while since I did that. I don't think my body's, I don't think my veins are used to jumbling around like that anymore. My body's pretty fucking sore, but I tried to learn how to do a backhand spring. I don't know. It's kind of like a couple months ago, I tried to learn Russian for like two hours really hard. I was just like, I'm going to learn Russian. If this pandemic, I'm going to be useful. I'm going to learn Russian. And then like less than three hours later, I was like, nah, I'm good. I can't. I learned how to say like dog and I don't even remember it now. But this backhand spring thing was the same kind of thing. I was like, look, you got the internet. You can learn anything. So I looked it up, and there was, like, some, like, 22-year-old dude. I don't even know how old he is. I don't know. He's just all, he's just, like, bare feet in the grass. And he was like, all right, step one, you got to, I don't know, it's like a James Brown dance move, like a thriller dance move where you got to fall, you got to fall backwards and catch yourself with one hand, and that's supposed to be, like, the first level of it. And it, I was not ready for that, dude. I stretched my shit out. <laughs> like, I went to bed with such a tummy, like, a muscular tummy ache. Of like, I felt like I did like 10,000 of those like leg lifts or whatever. Like when I was younger, I used to do a lot of those. It was the same kind of like, just like terrible pain. I was like, oh. So we're working through that. But look, it's an athletic kind of week. We're doing Hagler Hearns. Great fight. Uh, we're going to get into it. Uh, the, if you don't know, it was a middleweight title fight. And middleweight in boxing is 154 to 160. It took place on April 5th, 1985 at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas, Nevada. And, uh, again, if you're bummed out, we're not doing spooky shit, it's alright. Wednesday we're going to Aleister Crowley, and then it's spooky shit on until fucking November. So, the way this episode's gonna look, uh, again, one of the greatest fights in the history of boxing here. Uh, we're gonna meet the fighters, we're gonna take a look at some of the stylistic traits of both men leading into the fight. We're gonna talk about a few intangibles that happened going into the fight. And then, uh, we're gonna see how it played out, and take a look at what happened afterwards. So, if you don't know... And again, this fight's all over YouTube. You can find different versions of it. We're also going to touch on one of my favorite dudes of all time, Emmanuel Stewart, who trained Thomas the Hitman Hearns. We're going to look at the Kronk Boxing Gym a little bit, which is where Hearns came. All right, I'm getting ahead of myself. Anyway, 
Episode 48, The War. Marvelous Marvin Hagler versus Thomas the Hitman Hearns. One of the greatest fights of all time. Let's take a look at it. All right. Let's get to know our fighters. Hailing from Brockton, Massachusetts, by way of Newark, New Jersey. Ladies and gentlemen, standing 5 feet 9 inches tall and weighing in at 160 pounds, the WBA, WBC, IBF, undisputed middleweight champion of the world. Put your hands together for marvelous Marvin Hagler. I miss hosting comedy shows, I think. I, I don't know why I did it like that. Anyway, Marvin Hagler is the first one we're going to take a look at. All right, so Hagler was originally from Newark, New Jersey, but he did move to Brockton, Massachusetts in 1967 after the Newark riots. He was like, we got to get out of here. Family moved up to Brockton, Massachusetts. So he found boxing after he was getting his ass beat in 1969 by a local kid who was a boxer, and he was like, I got to figure this out. I can't keep getting beat the fuck up. So he made his way over to a boxing gym that was owned by the brothers Pat and Gordy Petronelli. And these are the dudes, this is the first boxing gym he went to, the first couple days he went, he just kind of looked at people and chilled out, and then Pat and Gordy approached, and they were like, hey, you look and learn how to fight. Hagler was like, yeah, dude, let's get into it. So Hagler would stay with Pat and Gordy Petronelli his entire career. These, they, they formed like a strong bond, and the way that one of the Petronellis described it is that like it's a triangle, where it's like, you know, there's nothing stronger than a triangle. That's how they describe their fight camp. So they formed like a, bro, a bond and a brotherhood. And also, while, while Hagler was working to support himself as a professional fighter, he couldn't really make ends meet, he worked a construction company job that the Petronellis gave him. So, like, he could make a little side work, construction job, while he's training for fights, and getting trained by Pat and Gordy Petronelli. It's a tight squad. That's where Hagler hailed from. Also, one of the cool things about Marvin Hagler is that when he was 15, he falsified his birth records so he could begin an amateur career. You had to be 16 to compete. So he just changed his birthday from 1954 to 1952. It was like, it's not even a big deal. What are we even, what are you even worried about? That's fine. That's all right. Which I thought, uh, I thought was kind of cool. Um, also, coming up, Hagler had a hard time finding opportunities for fights that would progress him from both the amateur ranks and the professional ranks. Because, famously, Joe Frazier once told Marvin Hagler to his face, look, you got three strikes against you. You're black, you're a southpaw, and you're good. And that's why nobody's going to want to look to go up against you. Because if you, I mean, we kind of touched on this in the Antonio Margarito episode, but the idea of slow teach. So if you're a boxing prospect or if you have a boxing prospect, you don't want to match it up against any other fighters that are going to make them look bad. So as, especially as a good southpaw, nobody really wanted to take a fight with Hagler because he had heavy hands. He had a difficult style that even if it wasn't, like, even if your prospect was going to win the fight, it might be an ugly fight because not everybody's great at fighting southpaws, especially a good southpaw. And this was the beginning of Hagler kind of having a chip on his shoulder about, like, this whole industry is against me a little bit, man. This whole thing, they're, they're trying to screw me over. And that's a pattern that continues throughout Hagler's career. It wasn't a paranoia thing, as we'll get into. Like, he did kind of – I mean, he rightfully had a chip on his shoulder. Like, it was him and the Petronellis coming out of Brockton, Massachusetts, and – I mean, they were looking for whatever opportunities they could get, but it was kind of hard to find Hagler fights coming up because he had a different like, style, and he was a good boxer. Nobody wanted to waste their prospects fighting some dude from Brockton who's going to fuck up their dude, and then that prospect's worthless moving forward because he no longer has an unbeaten record. So Hagler had a hard time finding fights coming up, but it gave him his chip-on-his-shoulder uh, chip kind of style. So he would take fights, though, but they would always be like a little bit of a catch, like, all right, you can take this fight, but it's two weeks' notice. You want this fight? It's a decent opportunity. So Hagler kind of just always stayed in shape. He was like, yeah, fuck it. I'll take a fight on 10 days, whatever. It's fine. 
I'm not going to, I got to take what I can take. I'm trying to make a boxing career here. I'll take it on two weeks notice. Or he would have to fight in the other guy's hometown, which sucks because if the decision, if it goes to decision, even if the judges aren't crooked, that hometown crowd is going to react whenever their hometown fighter lands a punch. And that may influence the judges, even if they're not inherently crooked, people are able to be influenced by the crowd. So all of this was kind of a tough road to hoe for Hagler coming up. And because of all this, the chip on the shoulder, Hagler was notorious for training and fighting with an intensity of a guy with a chip on his shoulder. Like, the first time he got a, a, a title shot was against Vito Antifermo. And, dude, it, it was ruled a draw, but Hagler saw it as a loss. He also saw it as more proof that people are just trying to fuck him over in this industry. There's no way that fight was a draw. Hagler won that fight, but it was called a draw. And so afterward, they were like, man, Marvin, you got to... You know, it was a good fight. You didn't lose. You didn't lose. But Marvin was like, I didn't get the belt. Because in a draw, Vito Antifermo retains the belt. So Hagler didn't accomplish his goal, become a champion. Now, the first time he did become champion was when he fucked up Alan Minter in England. Like, again, he had to go across the Atlantic Ocean to fight Alan Minter in his home country. Everybody in England loves Alan Minter. Here we go. Who's this guy? Hagler from Massachusetts. We don't know who this guy is. Hagler fucks him up in like three rounds. The ref stops it. It's a mess. Hagler w becomes champion for the first time in his life. And the entire crowd in Eng I think it was Wem Wembley Stadium, they start throwing fucking beer bottles at him. He can't enjoy that moment. He just knocked out Alan Minter. It's the first time he's a champion. And he's getting shit thrown at him from the crowd. The English police had to come into the ring and quickly get him out of the ring because there was going to be a riot. He wasn't even able to enjoy that, which just, again, lends... Lends credence to his theory that, like, this whole industry is against me, dude. I can't catch a break. Even when I, when I fuck a dude up and the ref stops the fight, I beat him clean. It doesn't go to decision. People are throwing shit at me. Why can't I enjoy any of this, dude? It's been hard since I started with this shit. I'm trying to make a, make a career here. I can't catch a break. And that was the attitude and the mentality he took into every training camp and every fight where it's like, it's me against the world. It's me and the Petronellis against this fucking world, dude. I don't care. I'll run these miles. I'll sacrifice more than anybody else. Because when it's fight night, I'm going to brutalize that dude. And you'll see, dude. You'll see. Just get me the fight. I don't give a shit if it's on two weeks. You'll fucking see. And that was Hagler, man. So that's 50% of this equation of a title fight we're going to take a look at. Just a dude with his chip on his shoulder. Brutal work ethic. We're going to get into the stylistic uh, Hagler style. We're also going to get into Hearn style in a second. We're just getting to meet the fighters right now. But that's half of the fight going in this in this sports entertainment extravaganza, baby. All right, let's take a look at the blue corner. Hailing from Detroit, Michigan by way of Memphis, Tennessee. Standing six feet, one inches tall. Also weighing in at 160 pounds, Thomas the Hitman Hearns. All right, Tommy Hearns was born in Memphis, Tennessee. And then he moved to Detroit. When he was five years old. Also, I like to put in a sidebar here. I uh, believe in like 2007, 2008, Floyd Mayweather was given an interview. And Floyd Mayweather is also from like the Michigan area. So like Floyd was like, dude, best fighters come from Michigan. Absolutely, hands down, best fighters come from Michigan. And I, I remember that interview when I, I think I, I knew he, he heard his fought out of the Kronk gym. But I didn't put it together that Detroit is in Michigan and Kronk is in Detroit. Therefore, Kronk is in Michigan. But in doing, in looking into this, I was like, oh, shit, I get it. I get why Floyd said that in, like, 2008, 2009. It makes sense. All right. I don't know if I agree with it, but, I mean, Floyd's a great fighter. Hearn's a great fighter. They're both from Michigan. I don't know. There's something to it. So, much like Marvin Hagler, Tommy Hearns was getting his ass beat as a little kid. He was getting his coat stolen as a young man. And this is how he made his way into the legendary Kronk Boxing Gym in Detroit. And this is where he started training, on a, again, one of my favorite dudes of all time, 
Emmanuel Stewart. Now, let's take a little sidebar here, and let's learn about Manny Stewart. Now, the first day that Tommy Hearns came into Kronk Boxing Gym, and also the Kronk Boxing Gym in the 70s, it was in, like, it was a, it was a Kronk Rec Center, K-R-O-N-K Rec Center. Now, the basement was the boxing gym, so you had to go down a flight of stairs. Dude, it is an intimidating, it's, like it's like a little bunker. Just the way, if you look it up, if you ever look up Crunk Boxing Gym, uh, I mean, it had burned down now. There's like a new location or whatever, but the original Crunk Boxing Gym, dude, you had to go down some steps and it was just, it had a vibe to it of like, holy shit, they are not fucking around down here. And that's where Tommy Hearns went down. He's just a little kid getting his coat stolen. He was like, hey, what's up? I got to learn how to fight. And Emmanuel Stewart, the first day Tommy Hearns came in, Emmanuel Stewart put him in with a kid that was like pretty good. And the other kid fucking broke Tommy Hearns' nose out the gate. Tommy Hearns goes back to the corner, straightens his nose out, goes right back in to fight the kid. And that's when Emmanuel Stewart said he saw something in Tommy Hearns there. And he, he, Emmanuel Stewart openly admits it, like Tommy Hearns wasn't the most athletic guy, but he kept showing up and he was tough as now. He, he didn't care. He kept showing up every day and he kept learning. And he had a long frame and Manny Stewart knew that, like, I might be able to teach this guy something. He's got determination to him. He's got a, he's got a will to learn. And also, Manny Stewart's kind of saw like a, a bond with Tommy Hearns because Tommy Hearns grew up without a father the same way Emmanuel Stewart grew up without a father. So as Tommy Hearns and Emmanuel Stewart would go on to have a professional career together as fighter and trainer, it kind of became like a father-son relationship too where there was more of a bond there than just a business relationship of like, I'm teaching you how to prize fight, you're prize fighting, making money, I'm taking a cut of your purses. It was kind of like a father-son relationship. And even if you watch, I mean, there's a ton of interviews about this fight all over the internet. I mean, Emmanuel Stewart still doesn't like talking about this fight. I mean, he's, he's passed away now, rest in peace. He's, uh, in 2012, he passed away. He was getting surgery for diverticulitis, and they also discovered colon cancer, which is very sad. Emmanuel Stewart was a fucking man, but he did pass away in 2012. But before he passed away in 2012, he did do interviews about this fight. And he's like, hey, I'm, I'm probably going to put it up on the Instagram with a post on this one because there's just a, a quick cut where he's just like, I, I don't even like talking about this fight to this day. It's just like, you could still see it. it. It hurts him how this fight played out. Not to tell you how it plays out or anything, but if you listen to this, you probably, I mean, you may already know how the fight ends up, but Manuel Stewart still remembers this fight because the bond between him and Tommy Hearns was so deep. It was more than just fighter trainer. It was kind of like a father-son thing. Tommy Hearns came in as a kid who couldn't fight getting his, getting his coat stolen. He had his fucking nose broke right away, and he, he straightened it out and went back in there. Emmanuel Stewart was like, I can make something out of this kid. Also, just to complete the sidebar on Manuel Stewart. Now, Manuel Stewart was an amateur boxer in his own right with a record of 94-3. and three. 94 wins and 3 losses. In 1963, he won the Golden Gloves. And uh, he started uh, training at Crunk Boxing Gym in, or as a trainer at Crunk Boxing Gym in 1971. He was teaching his half-brother how to box. And then through there, he got more pupils underneath him, became popular. And Emmanuel Stewart is sort of responsible for why Crunk Boxing Gym became such a legendary boxing gym. Because through the course of Emmanuel Stewart's career as a boxing trainer, he made 41 different world champions. That's not... Six guys winning a bunch of belts. That's 41 different dudes that Manuel Stewart took and made them into world champions. I mean, Emmanuel Stewart's in every boxing hall of fame that, that there is. And if it's not, then that's not a real boxing hall of fame. Manuel Stewart should be in every fucking boxing hall of fame. I'm pretty sure he is. One of the best boxing trainers of all time. Just a real quick list of the kind of bo boxers he's worked with. If you recognize any of these names, obviously Tommy Hearns we're talking about. Miguel Cotto was in the last episode we did on boxing. He worked with Oscar De La Hoya, Tyson Fury, who's still an active heavyweight now, Evander Holyfield, Julio Cesar Chavez, Aaron Pryor, Ricky Walmack, and Vladimir Klitschko. Dude, also tag this on the end. 
He also taught how uh, the rapper Eminem had a box, also from Detroit. He ended up getting, having, you know, learned how to box under Emmanuel Stewart. I thought that was pretty cool to add in there. Uh, and one more final thing on Emmanuel Stewart. Before he passed away, he was also known for doing a ton of charity work in Detroit, Michigan, specifically for ed, uh, youth education, youth activities, recreational activities to help, the, help young kids in Detroit, Michigan. Now, he also enjoyed having mansions and Bentleys and stuff, but hey, man, he made money. What's going on? There's nothing wrong with that. Manuel Stewart driving a Bentley, raising money for the kids, trying to help the youth. Love that guy. All right, so that was the trainer of Thomas Hitman Hearns. All right, let's talk about Hagler style a little bit. And also, this is nowhere near a thorough enough breakdown of either of these dudes' styles. I'll put that out there right now. This is not in any way a comprehensive overlook of either of these dudes' styles. Both of these guys were incredible boxers that I, there's no way I could, solve, I don't have the technical knowledge to be able to break down all of their games. They were so good. They were so good. Marvin Hagler is like, uh, I think he was like the number 12 or number six. People rank him like the 12th best pound for pound fighter of all time. And Tommy Hearns was right there. Like the middleweight division during this era was a fucking shark tank. You had Hagler, Hearns, Sugar Ray Leonard, you had Roberto Duran, and all these dudes were fighting each other. This is a great era for middleweight boxing, kind of like in 2005 to 2008, 2010 or whatever, when it was the 140, 147 pounders, or it was Pacquiao, Mayweather, Hatton, Cotto, all those guys. Back in the mid-80s, middleweight was the division that was popping off, where it was all these dudes, Hagler, Hearns, Duran, Sugar Ray Leonard, all these dudes fucking going around fighting each other, making a ton of money, selling pay-per-view. I don't even know if they were doing pay-per-views, but these are really popular fights, dude. They're selling out however the fuck they sold them. Man. All right, so let's take a look at Hagler's style, and specifically a move called the shift. All right, so Hagler, as a boxer, one of the most durable chins in the history of boxing. Really hard to rock this dude. And he was heavily muscled, dude. He was billed as a southpaw fighter, but he could fight... And he had power in both hands from either stance, southpaw or orthodox stance. And if you don't know what that means, orthodox stance, you probably know what this means, by the way. But just in case, orthodox stance. So if you're gonna if you're gonna box, if you've seen Street Fighter, Mortal Kombat video games, whatever, orthodox stance, your rear hand is pinching your cheek, and your right foot is back, and your left hand is forward, and your left hand, I mean, you're, you're kind of angled off on the guy. That's, I mean, I can't do any diagrams, but like right hand up by your cheek, your right foot's back, left, left foot's forward, left hand kind of in front of you, left hand's your jab hand, right hand's your, your power hand or your two. There's also numbers that I'm probably going to get into that I'm, hopefully I do a good enough job of explaining, but like jab is a one, right hand is a two. Left hook is a three. I might skip that shit. It's going to be too too complicated, and I can't use any fucking diagrams. Anyway, all right. Mar Marvin Hagler and his style. So, Hagler, incredible chin. Heavily muscled. Clubbing power in both hands, and he fought with a chip on his shoulder. He would break dudes with pace, power. He was aggressive, and he came on late during fights. He was kind of known as a slow starter a little bit, but, for example, he fought Roberto Duran, and he went, he went to decision with Duran, and he actually made way in the, late, in the latter stages of that fight is when he came on and he won that fight. So he was a guy who was known to get stronger later on as the fight progressed, kind of like an Antonio Margarito a little bit, but without the loaded gloves. So, why is being able to switch from southpaw to orthodox stance so possibly devastating in a fight? All right. One, being able to shift from southpaw to orthodox in a fight Forces your opponent to be able to follow and be defensively sound in either situation 
at random because your opponent doesn't know when you're going to switch stances. And again, a southpaw stance, I said the orthodox stance is your right foot back. Southpaw stance is just reversed. Your left foot's back, and now your left foot, or your left hand's your power hand. Your right, your right hand's your jab hand. It's just depending on which foot's forward and which foot's back. So, like, if you write with your right hand, you're probably an orthodox fighter because your right hand's your power hand. If you write with your left hand, if you're a lefty, you're probably a southpaw with your left hand back by, by your cheek, pinching your cheek like grandma, and then your right hand's up front. That's what southpaw means. So, by being able to, for Hagler being able to switch in a fight, what that does is it forces his opponent to be able to have to compute defensive mechanics for either of those stances. And I'm not going to be able to get into what all that shit means. There's just no way without diagrams to be able to tell you. But it matters which hand is forward and which hand is rear. Versus, uh, as far as like how do you parry, how do you counter, how do you slip if you're fighting a guy who's either southpaw or orthodox. There's different like it's sort of like patterns or a, a way to look at it that like there's different defensive mechanics for fighting each type of guy. That's also a reason why like Hagler couldn't find a bunch of fights coming up because. Southpaw mechanics when you're fo- or the defense for fighting a southpaw is different than fighting an orthodox guy. That's why Hagler would give other prospects kind of a hard look because he's a good southpaw. You don't see a whole lot of those as much as you see a lot of good orthodox guys. So nobody wanted to blow their prospects on Hagler, especially if he was able to switch like he was and he had power in both hands like he could. So it makes your opponent have to think defensively in two different ways in a way he can't control, so he has to be defensively sound against both types of fighters and be able to switch as quickly as you switch. It's also an advantage because it dramatically increases Hagler's options as far as setting and breaking patterns to be able to land a punch. You know, just a real, just a basic layman's, just the most basic version of this. So, so like in boxing, so one of the ways to try to score a punch, to score punches, score knockout punches, is to be able to set patterns and then break them. So if Hagler wanted to set a pattern and then get his opponent being able to react to that pattern, so if you wanted to throw like jab, jab, right hand, jab, jab, right hand, jab, jab, right hand, and then jab, jab, and then left hook. You, the idea is that you get your opponent to be able to try to predict what you're going to throw by throwing it a certain amount of times, and then you switch that pattern after he bites because he's already bought into the pattern almost subconsciously. He already, because he, you, you've made him do that defense a certain amount of times. So he thinks that he knows what's going to come next. And that's when you switch it. And that's when you land a power shot or you try to wobble him or you just land a punch. So by being able to set patterns from both a southpaw and an orthodox stance, it increases the amount of possible patterns that, that Marvin Hagler could try to set as far as traps go to be able to land power shots on opponents. Being able to switch is a really, really, uh, it's a a huge advantage for somebody who has clubbing power in both hands. Now, there's also a move that I want to talk about called the shift or shifting. And Hagler does this in Hagler Hearns. So, this is a technique that Hagler employed. Now, when throwing a punch, like let's say uh, Hagler was standing orthodox. So, it's right hand back, left hand forward. Now, if he was going to shift while he threw a right hand. Now, normally when you throw a right hand... You throw a right hand, and then it comes back, and then you're still in the same stance, and you regain your balance after, you, after the punch comes back to where it started, right? Now, with the shift, and Marvin Hagler could do this because he could fight in both southpaw and orthodox, you throw that right hand, but instead of having the punch come back and you reset your balance where you started, 
when you throw that right hand, you also bring your right leg forward with you. It kind of looks like a Frankenstein step. So you're throwing a right hand. You're also bringing your right leg forward with you. And in doing this, you cover distance and you also add power and momentum because that forward motion and all your body weight behind that right hand and you land in the opposite stance that you started in. It's called the shift or shifting. Hagler employed it. A number of other boxes employed it. Triple G employs it. It's a really effective thing to be able to land in a different stance and then continue to throw power shots, especially if you have good club and power in both hands. And uh, Hagler did employ it in Hagler Hearns. There's another like uh, it's also a way to cover distance when you're trying to get your guy against the ropes. It's it's just a really crafty move. That's sort of an old school move that kind of comes in and out of favor. But some guys who are really good at it, I mean, they can land knockout punches with it, and it's pretty confusing if you're trying to defend against it. So that's Hagler. Hopefully you got some of that. Let's take a look at Tommy Hearns here. Now, I, I, I'm a sucker for Tommy Hearns because he's a big, long kid who sucked at fighting and got good. I don't know. I like the tall drink of water guys. I, mean, I haven't played ice hockey. I got fucked up so much. So I like Tommy Hearns just inherently because he's like a tall guy who kind of made it work. All right? So Hearns was long for middleweight at six foot one, and he was an excellent boxer. Manuel Stewart told him how to use that long reach. He could box, but he could also fight on the inside. Now, he would throw to the... Now, one of the things he would do he would, is that he would swarm intelligently. He knew how to keep distance with his jab, but he would also throw to the body incredibly hard if he had his man up against the ropes. And a couple of different clips, watching, the, watching Tommy Hearns fight, so he, he'll stun a guy or he'll force a guy back into the ropes, and then the first punch he throws is a haymaker left hook to the guy's ribs. Now, one, this is incredibly smart because if the fight doesn't end right here, he's putting money in the bank and damage that'll last on this dude as the rounds go on. You, that body shot's going to fucking slow that guy down, take the air out of his tires no matter what. And if the guy's covering his heads up, that's a free shot at his ribs. Now, also, Hearns would go ahead and load up to the, or I'm sorry. Yeah, Tommy Hearns would go ahead and load up on the, like his first shot, left hook to the body. Because if he's looking to knock the guy out on the ropes, if you drill him to the ribs, the first thing a fighter may do is drop his guard down. Like if he was going earmuffs to try to cover his head up, to try to not get knocked out on the ropes, and you slam him to the body, he's going to drop his elbows down and therefore expose his temple or maybe his jawline. And then Hearns can finish the combination up top and maybe try to put him out. You have an early night. You have the fight's fucking over. You knocked him out because you made the guy drop his guard by drilling him to the body when he didn't expect it. So Hearns would swarm intelligently when he had a guy on the ropes, bank and damage for the rest of the fight just in case. Now, another thing that Tommy Hearns had was incredible power in his right hand. People almost didn't, un didn't understand how this tall dude that looked like, a, like he might be able to get blown over. If he held an umbrella, he might blow away. He might marry Poppins the fuck out of here <laughs> if he held an umbrella. They didn't understand where this hellacious right hand came from. He just had incredible throwing mechanics in his right hand, and he used it intelligently. Now, I tried to watch, and again, I'm not an expert here, but Tommy, hand, Tommy, Tommy Hearns, to the best of my ability, knew how to throw what is known as an implosive right hand as opposed to an explosive right hand. Now, an explosive right hand, your power is going upward and outward. Now, in an implosive right hand, because Tommy Hearns was six foot one, so almost everybody was shorter than him. In an implosive right hand, your power is going down and in and rotationally in. It's just a harder way. It's a more efficient way to channel right hand power. It almost looks like 
like it's going straight, but it goes down just a little bit. It's the difference between an explosive and an implosive right hand. An implosive right hand is much more efficient as far as transferring force goes, and it's more efficient as far as like not wasting your momentum because you're not going to get off balance as close as as easily as possible. Also, I mean, his Tommy Hearns' right hand would be fucking vaporizing, dude. Some of these knockouts, if you look up Tommy Hearns' knockouts, he would do that shit where you just fold over on your own leg. Dude, he was blowing people away with his right hand, and people couldn't believe it. They're like, how's this fucking tall guy from Detroit have a right hand like this? And also, he had power in both hands, too. His left hook would fuck people up, too. He got knockouts with his left hook, too. Both of these guys had power in both of their hands. Tommy Hearns was more known as a, like a one-shot knockout artist, but Hagler had one-shot knockout, too, and every punch Hagler threw was heavy, man. So, implosive right hand. He swarmed intelligently. Also, Hearns employed the anchor punch, which Muhammad Ali popularized this technique. Also, if you've ever seen uh, that fight, Anderson Silva versus Forrest Griffin. Anderson Silva starches Forrest Griffin with an anchor punch. Also, Conor McGregor, Jose Aldo. Conor McGregor sparked out, or sparked out Jose Aldo with an anchor punch in here. So what an anchor punch is, it's a right hand, but it's you got like a half a step back or a lean back because when you have an, an aggressive opponent who might be emotional or trying to charge in at you, like in the McGregor fight, Jose Aldo, before that fight, was all fired up about all the shit talk or whatever. So Aldo ran in at McGregor. McGregor took a half step back and just chambered and fired a right hand. And it doesn't even have to be the hardest right hand in the world because the technique is predicated upon the forward momentum of your opponent coming towards you. And you're just going to meet his jawline. Even if you hit him on the, on the point of the chin, that forces the jaw back, rattles that nerve. That guy goes out. Tommy Hearns was great at that, and he employed the anchor punch. So... Both of these guys had a number of different techniques to be able to fuck each other up. They both wanted to fight. Now, let's take a look at the intangibles before we actually get to the fight itself. All right, fight week preparations. A couple of things happened. We're going to take a look at the ref. Now, all right, coming into the fight in Las Vegas, by the, by the it's fight week. You're supposed to do press. Marvin Hagler, like, barely spoke English at this point in time. Marvin Hagler was so intense. When he would go into a training camp, he would refer to it as going to jail. He wouldn't talk to anybody he was just saying shit out loud to himself, be like, destroy and destruction, all mine. Running on the fucking beach in sweatpants, not talking to anybody. He, he, that, was his, that was his mentality. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suffer more than anybody else in training camp. So when it comes time to fight, this guy can, I will break this dude. I don't care what the fuck he's done. I've been out there talking to myself on the beach, running as hard as I can. I'm not doing anything. I'm, I'm in the mentality that I'm in jail. So when Hagler got to Las Vegas... He was, he barely speak English. He was just like, war, destroy and destruction, all mine. He was just like, all right, so you're going to speak full sentences? He would just kind of look away. Dude, some of the presses are pretty funny, right? That's how Hagler came in, all ready for business. Chip on his shoulder, ready for his opponent, ready to go. Now, I would like to say the one, uh, one of the mutual opponents both Hagler and Hearns had before this fight was Roberto Duran. Now, Marvin Hagler took him to a decision, won a decision. Tommy Hearns. Knocked out Roberto Duran spectacularly in the second round. It was a clean knockout, and Roberto Duran fell face down on his face. It, people talk about that being maybe the highlight of Tommy Hearns' career is his knockout of Roberto Duran. He fucking starched that guy. That dude fell flat on his face, dude. It was a, that was it, dude. So that's the one mutual. I mean, there's I'm not sure if there were more, but that was the one that really stuck out to me because Duran was one of those guys floating around that 160-pound shark tank during this. And so... People were looking at this fight and being like, well, Tommy Hearns knocked out Duran, and Duran went the distance on Marvin Hagler. I don't know what's going on here. Also, fight week, Tommy Hearns 
was partying down. He was doing public workouts. I think it's Rocky Three, where Rocky has to fight Mr. T, and he's like working out in that like nice gym and shit. That's kind of what it reminded me of looking at Tommy Hearns fight week during Las Vegas. He was doing public workouts. He had a huge entourage. I mean, he was ready to go, but people were looking at like he was gambling on the casino floor the week of the fight. So some people who were looking to bet on the fight were like, dude, Hearn, Tommy Hearns is down there just gambling, fucking playing roulette and shit. That guy's not worried at all. That dude's going to win this fight. Who the fuck is Marvin Hagler out here talking to himself? That guy's going to get fucked up, dude. Tommy Hearns is down here gambling, having a good time. He's not even worried. It was like that Rocky Three thing where Rocky was just kind of training and Mickey was kind of upset with him or whatever. I don't know if Emmanuel Stewart was upset with Tommy Hearns at this point in time. I don't know, but he would get upset with him very shortly because of something that happened. Now, the night of the fight, Tommy Hearns, up in the hotel room. Manuel Stewart, I'm going to go get my fighter. Here we go. We got a game plan. I'm going to go up and get him from his hotel room. Manuel Stewart goes up to the hotel room. Tommy Hearns is there with a massive entourage. Manuel Stewart is quoted as being like, Tommy had one of the biggest entourages I'd ever seen in my life. And, it, and just the tone of it, Emmanuel Stewart seems like he wasn't too big of a fan of, of you know having a big entourage, something like that, which kind of makes sense. So Manuel Stewart goes up to go get Tommy Hearns out of his, out of his hotel room. Go down. We got a fight now, son. Gets up there, and Tommy Hearns, one of the hanger-ons, one of these entourage dudes who didn't even fucking know Tommy Hearns when he was getting his coat stolen and shit, I'm pretty sure, he had, this guy had just given Tommy Hearns a deep tissue rub down of his legs, which I didn't know this, but Emmanuel Stewart was like, what are you doing? You cannot have a massage before a title fight. And as, as Emmanuel Stewart explains it, massage leaves the body spent. You do a massage after a hard workout. You do not do a deep tissue massage before you gotta go fight Marvin fucking Hagler. The guy's been saying destroy and destruction for the last how many weeks. He's not even speaking English. You had a leg massage? And Emmanuel Stewart, even in, in all the interviews about this fight, he's like, I knew right then we were in trouble. I knew right then we were in trouble. So Tommy Hearns, going into the fight, kind of concerned, was like, alright, I gotta get Marvin Hagler the fuck out of here. I do not want to go the distance with him. I know he went the distance with Duran. I know he came on strong with Roberto Duran. Now, yes, I did knock out Roberto Duran spectacularly. However, I do know Marvin Hagler is a tough fighter. I do not want to go the distance with him. Tommy Hearns makes a decision. I got to try to knock this guy the fuck out quick. Make this an early night. I cannot go the distance with this dude. Plus, he knows his legs might be kind of shot. He might feel kind of weird going to the ring. He probably shouldn't have got that massage. One more thing before we start the fight. The referee in the fight was a dude named Richard Steele. Now... This is the third man in the ring that night, and in my opinion, excellent job. Now, I don't know shit about boxing refs, but I have watched the fight a number of times, and Richard Steele actually adds to the excitement when I watch the fight because he's such a dynamic referee. So I looked into him. Richard Steele himself was a boxer. Richard Steele was all Marines in 1964. He, he, completed, uh, he completed in the Olympic trials. He had an amateur record of 12-3. And a pro record of 16 and 4. Even the third man in the ring that night, Richard Steele, was a capable boxer who could definitely beat my ass. So everybody in the ring that night, both fighters and the referee, all capable boxers. And if you watch the fight, the way Richard Steele moves, because as I understand it, a referee is supposed to pattern his movement off of the fighter's movement. So whoever's circling which way, whoever's leading the action, the referee is supposed to follow off of him. And watching the fight, it actually adds because Richard Steele is such a dynamic referee and he stays on top of his job so much, even when it's time to break fighters up. And people do speculate that Richard Steele did break these guys up a little bit quicker than normal. 
nobody knows whether or not, well, you know, wh- why he was trying to do that. But when, when Richard Steele would break him up, it wasn't, he didn't get in there really. He would just do it. Th- he would just slap him on the elbows. All right, break it up, break it up, break it up. And it actually adds to the excitement when you see it. It kind of feels like, all right, Richard Steele's staying out of business. He's doing his job, not being a star or anything. Break it up, boys, just keep going. Richard Steele did an excellent job in this fight, in my opinion. Not that it fucking means anything, but I thought that was a cool sidebar that actually even the referee in this fight could beat my ass. All right, here we go. Round one. Let's go. Now, Hearns had decided he needs to get Hagler out of there. He does not want to go the distance. He does not feel good about that deep tissue massage. He's kind of having questions. All right, let's go blast him away, dude. I got that. I got an implosive right hand. I'm going to land it on this dude's head. Here we go. Now, Hagler, again, was a notorious slow starter, but he made a similar decision before the fight started that he thought that Tommy Hearns was going to come out and try to come right for him. And he was like, he thinks I'm going to start slow. Fuck that. I'm going right at him full clip. And that's why round one of Hagler Hearns is regarded as maybe the best round of boxing of all time because this bell rings and these dudes both come out full clip, dude. The opening bell rings and the next three minutes are chaos, dude. Both men landing hard power shots on each other. Within the first minute of the fight, Tommy Hearns landed his right hand clean on Marvin Hagler within the first minute of the round, and Hagler just eats it. He, he took Tommy Hearns' best punch. He ate it up, and then after that moment, some people say that after that right hand landed and Hagler didn't go anywhere, people were like, holy shit, Tommy Hearns is done because it was his best punch. He was vaporizing dudes with that punch. He's, he hit Marvin Hagler clean with it. Hagler didn't go anywhere. He just ate it. And Marvin Hagler, after he ate that punch, was like, oh, it's fine. I can just walk through this shit. Let's go. And Hagler started coming after him, dude. The first round of this fight was chaos, dude. Marvin stunned Tommy with a hard left. And then they tied up for a minute. And then they got right back to it. Full clip throwing at each other again. Hagler develops a small cut in his forehead behind, before the end of the round. And then the, the round mercifully ends after three minutes. And people, the audience, the announcers, everybody is stunned at what they just saw. You never see a round of boxing like that. It just turned out that way. Two dudes, super dangerous in their own rights. 160-pound fighters, so they're small enough to be able to be quick and agile and throw with volume, but they're also big enough to hurt each other. It was a perfect combination of both dudes coming into that fight were like, I'm coming out hot. Here we go. And for three minutes, dude, it was fucking chaos, dude. If, if, I, if, you, if you're down on lunch break, if you're having a hard Monday, pull it up on your phone. And just at least watch the first round of this. Dude, it is wild as shit. The crowd's on fire afterwards. They can't believe what they just saw. Even the announcers are like, this is going to go. That's just the first round, right? So start around two. All right. So around two, they managed to stop the bleeding on Hagler's forehead cut. It's just a small cut at this point in time. They stopped the bleeding in between rounds. All right, that's fine. Now, after the fight, Tommy Hearns revealed that in that first round, he broke his right hand on Marvin Hagler's head. So Tommy Hearns' number one weapon, that implosive right hand, what he'll use for an anchor punch, what he's been blasting dudes with, he broke his hand on Hagler's rock-hard head, one of the most durable chins in all of boxing history. Hearns broke his hand on that head. So it was incredibly painful for the remainder of this fight. Every time Tommy Hearns throws a right hand after round one, there is stinging pain going into his body because it hasn't numbed up. He just broke it. So every time after round one, Tommy Hearns throws a right hand, there's a ton of pain going down that dude's arm, sucking into his brain and being like, this fucking hurts. Tommy Hearns keeps throwing it. Keeps throwing. Now, round two is a little bit slower pace. 
But yeah, dude, Tommy Hurts broke his hand in the first fight. He's, I mean, you can see him throw left hook, left jabs. His left hand's more active in the second round. But you can't really tell he keeps throwing it because he didn't want to show Marvin Hagler that he hurt his right hand or have Marvin Hagler's corner pick up on it because they're watching Tommy Hearns to try to glean like, okay, how do we do this moving forward? So Hearns had to keep throwing that busted right hand just to keep up appearances that it wasn't broken. Man, that had to be incredibly painful. Pace a little bit slower in round two. But here's another thing, and Tommy Hearns admits this. Round two, he kind of felt like his legs weren't there. I don't know if it was due to the massage or what. Emmanuel Stewart 100% believes it was that fucking, that massage from that hanger on. Because it's round two, and Tommy Hurts should not have tired legs by now. He should not have rubbery legs. Yeah, he's been eating shots, but he shouldn't be spent like this. His, Tommy Hurts' balance and coordination towards the end of round two kind of looks a little bit weird. And people are like, is he fucking hurt? What is happening? So round two, a little bit slower, still trading hard shots. But at the end of round two, two judges gave it to Hagler, and one judge saw it for Tommy Hearns. But again, still a spectacular fight. But at this point in time, Tommy Hearns kind of has rubbery legs from that deep tissue massage he shouldn't have had, and he's got a broken right hand. Now, Marvin Hagler had, does have a cut on his forehead that opened back up before the end of round two, but it's not that bad yet. Round three. Broken right hand or not, Tommy Hearns decides, I'm coming out hard. Here we go. I got a hard charge at him. I got to reestablish control of this fight. I cannot let this get out of here. I'm trying to win this fucking thing. Now, the forehead cut on Hagler's heads opens up badly. Badly to the point where referee Richard Steele has to call a stop to the action to have the ringside physician examine the cut and decide whether or not Marvin Hagler is fit to continue in this title fight. Marvin Hagler's like, what are you talking? What are you talking about? You bring it's a forehead cut. What are you talking? But in Marvin Hagler's head, it's not just oh, referee stoppage to have the doctor check this cut. In Marvin Hagler's head, this is the same pattern he's had his whole boxing career. Boxing is trying to take shit from me. Boxing's trying to stop this fight. They know I'm going to knock out Tommy Hurts. They're going to try to stop it on some bullshit cut. Yeah, I'm bleeding out of my forehead. I can see, and I'm winning this fight. They're trying to take it from me. Now, Hagler goes over to the corner. The doctor says, oh, it's not in his eyes. He can see. That's fine. But it doesn't matter. Hagler's had this whole pattern, his whole career, where I, in his head, he was like, if I let this go to round four, they are going to stop this fight in between, and they are going to take this belt from me. They're going to give it to Tommy Hearns, and I know I can knock his ass out. After the doctor stoppage, Marvin Hagler comes out with a chip on his shoulder, and he is throwing. He comes out looking to end the fight. He is hunting Tommy Hearns down. And Tommy Hearns can't, I mean, he's run, He's trying to keep up with him, but Hagler thinks he's going to stop the fight. He's throwing everything because he thinks the fight's going to be over in between rounds. Hagler is throwing at Tommy Hearns, and yup, Hagler lands a right-hand hook, and he staggers Tommy Hearns. And he almost, it almost looks like he runs after Tommy Hearns at this point in time. Blood streaming out of Hagler's face. Tommy Hearns on rubbery legs from that massage. He got a broken right hand. He just got rocked by a hard right hook. And... Tommy Hearns hits him with a right, and it staggers him, and then he throws a left, and he misses, and then Hagler lands a crushing right hand from orthodox stance, because he, he hit the shift while he was in pursuit, and Tommy Hearns collapses, and he doesn't collapse right away, because the momentum of Hagler's right hand that he actually jaws him with and knocks him out with because he was bringing his leg with him when he did it. So the momentum of Hagler's body ends up underneath Tommy Hearns after that massive right hand that knocks Hearns out. And Hearns' tall body actually drapes on top of Hagler for a second. 
And then he goes off him, and Tommy Hearns is laying on the canvas. He's fucking knocked out cold. Marvin Hagler has beaten and knocked out Tommy Hearns in the third round in maybe the most spectacular eight minutes in the history of boxing. It was an incredible fight. The crowd is going nuts. The announcers are going nuts. People can't believe this shit. Tommy Hearns tries to get up to his feet. He can't get up to his feet. Marvin Hagler has retained his title in Los Angeles. Marvin Hagler's getting carried around the ring, blood streaming out of his forehead cut, and Tommy Hearns is a beaten man, wobbly legs. Emmanuel, it's hard for Emmanuel Stewart to look at him, that father-son relationship. And he knew he sh- Emmanuel Stewart knew he shouldn't have gotten that massage. Who was that hanger on giving him that leg massage? He knows Tommy's got a broken right hand. but It breaks Emmanuel Stewart's heart even to talk to it, even when he was giving interviews in the 2000s about this fight. It, it crushed him to see this son figure that he had brought up from a kid who got his coat stolen the first day he got his nose broken. And Emmanuel Stewart taught him how to, how to box from... Brought him all along his amateur career. Brought him all the way into Hagler Hearns. And he watched him get knocked out like that. And he got knocked out. And he just went. He went down. Just a pile of brick. When he went down, people knew he wasn't getting back up. That right hand that Hagler hit him with. And his, his body was just draped on Hagler for a second. And then he just fell, he fell to the canvas. And that was it. Richard Steele counted him out. And that was how Hagler Hearns played out, guys. Incredible fight. First round, maybe the best round in the history of boxing. All right. Aftermath of the fight. Tommy Hearns. And I, I didn't really like this. But I mean, I don't think anybody liked it. I mean, Tommy Hearns ended up getting carried out of the ring that night by some hanger-on. I don't know if it was the same guy who gave him a leg massage or whatever, but it was like, let the guy walk out in his own power. He ended up doing the thing like, it was like a Romeo and Juliet carry, where it's like if you were going to carry your babe across a threshold if you got married, the way you'd like carry her in your arms like that. That's how Tommy Hearns got carried out of the ring that night. And people don't like that. I mean, but the fight, the fight itself was declared 1985 fight of the year, even though it lasted less than three rounds. It's eight minutes and one second long. Declared 1985 fight of the year. Round one, widely regarded as the best. The best round of boxing of all time. It is total chaos. I really recommend you watch that if you haven't seen it. Uh, marvelous Marvin Hagler would go on to lose a split decision to Sugar Ray Leonard because he was looking for that fight. He knew if he beat Tommy Hearns, he could get a shot at Sugar Ray Leonard, and that was a big payday fight. He did end up getting that payday fight and lost a split decision. Kind of kept his pattern of like, man, boxing's trying to screw me, man, whatever. And then he retired right after that. I believe he went to go live in Italy after that. Tommy Hearns. Uh, had been knocked out by Sugar Ray Leonard, but he got a second shot in 89 and fought him to a draw. And uh, just a side note here, Richard Steele would go on to continue to referee fights. Uh, there was some controversy, notably the Meldrick Taylor versus Julio Cesar Chavez fight, where Richard Steele would stop the fight with two seconds left. Meldrick Taylor was ahead on scorecards. Even after Meldrick Taylor gets knocked down in the last round of that, um, but he was ahead uh, ahead of Julio Cesar Chavez so much he would have won a decision. But Richard Steele stopped that fight with two seconds left. That's a great controversy in Richard Steele's career. People kind of give him shit where it's like, yeah, Melodic Taylor was getting his ass beat, but you at least give him the win for that, you know. But um, Richard Steele would come back and be like, no fight is worth a man's life. Um, and he still sticks by that decision, the idea of st- stopping that fight two seconds short of being done. Um, that's pretty. Uh, that's kind of a sad story. But, uh, oh, one more thing. Uh, I was watching Manny Pacquiao, Eric Morales, too, and uh, Manuel Stewart would go on to be an HBO broadcaster. He's, uh, he did all those fights in, like, the, when the 147, 140 pound from, like, 2005 to, like, 2010, 2000, until he passed away in 2012, rest in peace. But uh, 
Manuel Stewart was a boxing commentator. One of the fights he called was Manny Pacquiao, Eric Morales too. And in that fight, Eric Morales' corner starts rubbing his legs in between around like round five, around five, six, or seven. Eric Morales starts to complain of cramps and his, his corner starts rubbing his legs. And immediately, Emmanuel Stewart's like, I don't like that. I don't like that. You should not be rubbing his legs. Rubbing the legs is the last thing you want to do. That's the last thing. Dude, he never forgot that, that fucking hanger on giving Tommy Hearns that massage. It broke his heart so bad to see Tommy Hearns get knocked out like that. It's a great story. <sighs> Incredible reco. Whoever, whoever threw that review on here, again, I was supposed to do a spooky one, but this is a really fun topic, and uh, I enjoyed looking into it. Uh, I got a little overzealous trying to learn how to do a back handspring <laughs> for no fucking reason, but hopefully you guys like this story. Uh, again, you, you look this fight up. There's a legend, ESPN did a great special on this called Legendary Nights that has a bunch of interviews from the, the Hagler and Hagler's trainers. That, I mean, that's a great, that's a great documentary on this. Um, there's all sorts of stuff. It's one of the greatest boxing fights of all time. Guys, thanks so much for listening. I uh, hope you have a great Monday. And uh, we'll be back on Wednesday with uh, spooky topics. We're going to be uh, heading on down through October with uh, a bunch of creatures and murderers and all sorts of shit. So thanks so much for listening. And I hope you guys have a, have a nice Monday. All right. I'll see you.